Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Katya Sengel, whose latest book is From Chernobyl with Love, Reporting from the Ruins of the Soviet Union. Katya Sengel is also the author of... Bluegrass Baseball, A Year in the Minor League Life, and Exiled from the Killing Fields of Cambodia to California and back. This book has been in the works for a while, I take it, even before you were working on the Cambodian book, is that right? Yeah, actually, I started this before the Cambodia book, but timing-wise, it was a lot of publishers saying, we like it, but don't really have a place for it right now. And then it just became more topical when... First, Russia came more into with the previous elections, and then now Ukraine. People became more interested in the region, I think. Let me get the date straight. You were there from about in um, Latvia and later in the Ukraine from about 98 to 2002 or something? To 2002 to 2003. I'm bad on exacts, but I think that, yeah, right in that area. And you were there at 9-11 in the Ukraine? Yes. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the Ukraine now, because you've been reading up. Have you been back since you left? No, that's what's interesting. I have not, and I know it's changed immensely since then. Some things don't change, which is how people live on some level and the level of corruption. When you look at what's gone down, what do you see in terms of what the Ukraine has been doing apart from this particular event? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's interesting because even when I was there, the energy sector's always been a hot topic. And there was corruption back then, and I think obviously still is. So you have a lot of that. It's interesting, though, because now we've also got the younger generation that did not grow up under communism. So you got some of these. When I was there, it was still the people in charge and in my generation as well. Not me, but the people my age had experienced communism, not their whole lives, but they had that background. Now you've got this younger generation that didn't have that background. So it could be very different in years to come as the older generations kind of move on. And I'm seeing some interesting younger people doing projects that are trying to change things and get different influence in there. But yeah, you have years of a certain kind of system in Soviet corruption that it doesn't go away overnight. It takes a long time for people to change. You went over there along with a lot of younger people, though many people came over a few years before. I have a friend, Jeff, who was in Prague trying to be a writer there and a reporter. Food was minimal and everybody played guitars and it was a really weird scene. Is that sort of what it was like a few years later in like 98 in Riga? I think so. It was interesting because it was open, but it wasn't that known yet. So it was the adventuresome people who would go there. Latvia also was off the beaten track a bit. So you'd get people, uh, sometimes some former Peace Corps volunteers who overstayed. That was one of... Um, 
our writers in Lithuania was one of those. And then my editor, Steve, I think he'd come kind of on adventure and then ended up staying on in, in Riga. I would say male than female in that part of the world and at that time, but then there were some women as well. Not as many as you see now flocking to certain areas or like Prague became so popular years right. later. But at that time, it was still, like you said, there were things that was hard to get. You you still had Soviet-style service in a lot of ways, items that were hard to get. Definitely peanut butter and Coke were some of those items that you couldn't get. Advil. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. yes uh, when you were there, uh, what was the food like? I mean, was there much food that at the beginning? There was enough. Like, there weren't lines for food, at least in the capital and where I was. But I remember someone laughed if you brought up the idea of being a vegetarian or anything. There was definitely meat and potatoes and more meat and more carbohydrates and not a lot of vegetables the restaurant I used to go with with another writer was um, the Hare Krishnas had a restaurant, and that was where you could get some vegetables and some spices and something different. So we'd all go to the Hare Krishna restaurant and get different kinds of food. Well, this was still, you know, less than a decade after the Soviet Union broke up. Did it still kind of feel like the Soviet Union in terms of going to a restaurant or stores, things like that? Yes, especially stores. I remember the process. You would choose what you wanted and get in one line, and you would be given a ticket. Then you take that ticket to another line, and you would pay for it. Then you get another ticket and take that ticket to yet another line to get your item. So I joked it was a way to keep down consumerism because uh, it just took too long. <laughs> You'd have to go through multiple lines or we'd call them point-and-shoot shops. Everything was behind a counter. You couldn't actually get up and pick things. You had to point and they'd bring it out for you. And sometimes if you had language difficulties or if you couldn't read that far away, you had no idea what you were pointing at and what you were getting. What currency did they use? In Latvia? Oh, gosh. Now I'm forgetting. In, in Ukraine, it was the Grivna, although everyone just called them rubles, and dollars. B large money, like I was paid in dollars at both places. So, And especially in Ukraine, the currency was so unstable. You would keep dollars, and daily you would exchange what you needed. Larger items, you'd pay in dollars, but for smaller items, you needed to buy something at the grocery or something like that, bread. You would go to their kiosks every corner. You could exchange money, and you'd just exchange it there weren't ATMs at that point. Um, so you just exchange it and uh, pay in the local currency, but it changed so often. I was in Laos and it's basically the same. You use their money for small items like getting food on, on the street and then bigger items, everybody uses dollars. Yeah, yeah, like my rent, I paid in dollars and um, you were given your salary in dollars and yeah. You talk about watching TV. I guess at that point it was just kind of like old black and whites or old colors or what? That's a good question. I'm trying to remember. I think it was black and white, and I remember it was really badly dubbed. So you'd get these American shows, and I could pick up the first couple words in English, and then it would go into Russian. I always hated the show ALF, but I'd watch it just to feel like a sense of home. Yeah, very badly dubbed. And I think my TV was black and white. 
technology changed so much. Internet was just kind of beginning, and it was very spotty. You wouldn't get at all places. So it was a lot harder to communicate with people back home than it is now, where you go to a place and you can kind of send them a message all the time. And electricity in Riga and Ukraine, was it like say, California 2019 coming and going? (laughs) You always had a candle or flashlight just in case. In the capitals, I was lucky in where I lived. Usually it was pretty predictable, but you go outside Kiev back then, some villages would have electricity one hour a day, but it was often in the middle of the night. So you'd have to time it. So you'd have everything you needed done with electricity during that time. Capitals were better. Occasionally come home and there was no electricity and it was just... There wasn't warnings or anything like that. It's just like, okay, no electricity today. And water, same thing occasionally. Okay, no water today. But much more regular in the capital. I think Riga, there was like a week or so sometimes in summer, it would just shut off the water. Outside capitals, regular shutoffs. And you'd have, again, usually maybe an hour to a day of water. And so people would just fill their bathtubs. So you'd make sure you were home during that time, although they'd change the time on you. Fill your bathtub so you would have water for the rest of the day when there was no water. That could get pretty old pretty oh, fast. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It was very difficult. Living outside of Kiev, I never lived outside. I'd visit those places. It was very difficult. Just living took up all your time and energy. One of the uh, salient points that came out of from Chernobyl with love was, you know, we in the West get this idea and it's sort of understandable because the Soviet Union was a pretty harsh place to live, even in the cities. The opening of democracy or corruption, whatever it might be, sort of made things a little bit easier. But you talk in the book about a lot of people who had really good jobs and professionals who were suddenly out of work. Yeah, I think what we forget, especially right after the collapse and at least for a decade or so afterwards, the whole system had been destroyed. And so when a system is destroyed, the people who end up getting power, the people who are already in power. So the ordinary people are the ones who suffer. The Soviet Union worked when it was together. But when you separated out, you had one country producing one part of a car, another country produced. So it was meant to work together. And it was never meant, it was meant to fail when it falls apart. So it was just a mess with regular shortages, electricity, water all over the different countries, and then displaced people who had been moved different places under Soviet times. But yeah, professionals, teachers, especially uh, most people still had jobs. They just weren't paid. <laughs> so there was this problem, like uh, Sveta, one of the women in the book, she she had a teaching job and she'd had it for years, but she hadn't been paid in years. So she can't do it. And she was one of those who was outside the city, so came to the city to get work. So I think the collapse of the whole system really hurt ordinary people. And then Ukraine, um, the currency got devalued so extreme that the older generation completely lost their pensions and the younger generation lost their savings. Like someone like Sveta, she would joke, she's like, I should have bought another degree while they were on sale because it was so much chaos right after the collapse that you could buy degrees, you could do all these things. But of course, if you didn't weren't in the position to buy them, you couldn't. So... More corruption. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, another sense I got, particularly in the Ukraine, where you were there a bit longer, uh, was that the corruption was so overwhelming, it almost felt like nothing worked without bribery. 
Yeah, and I think that was very difficult for me to understand because I didn't grow up in a system like that, but it was more just normal and it wasn't considered bribery or even bad, you know, it was just how things work. I remember when I was seeing a doctor and they were treating me and medical care is free, but it was pointed out to me that if I wanted good medical care, I needed to pay the doctor. And I just didn't know how to do that when it's not official payment, how you would actually go about doing this. So luckily, my Ukrainian boyfriend did this and he didn't make a big deal out of it. But for me, it was like, well, do you just slip the money in or do you say thank you and give the money? I mean, it it was kind of complicated, but for them, it's just every day. And it, it's the idea is, well, doctors aren't paid very well. And so if she's going to take good care of you, we'll give her extra money. So it, it's almost it's a system that no one considers it corrupt or bad. It's just how it is. And it's just understood. But yeah, everything from doctors um, to you get stopped at a traffic stop, you know, when you hand over your license, you put a little money inside. And so it's just kind of acknowledged that's what you do. And that's how it works. And so it was hard for outsiders to get it. And for those from there, it's hard for them to understand. I remember my boyfriend, when he first came to the U.S., he didn't understand what a speeding ticket was. I was like, he said, well, can't I just take the officer's picture? Because he was a photographer. I said, no, no, you can't do that. (laughs) And he said, well, well, how about can I just give him some money? I said, no, no, you, you get a ticket. He said, what's a ticket? He just didn't understand that it didn't work. Some of the particular stories that you worked on are in the book. Chernobyl, is key. Uh, You visited there when you were in Latvia, and then again, you went back in the Ukraine, right? In Latvia, I did a story about Latvians who had been sent to help clean up, but I didn't actually visit when I was in Latvia. I ended up going when I was in Ukraine four times, I think, separate trips for stories. But yeah, I did the first time I started reporting about it was in Latvia, and I thought that was interesting for me is how those outside the country were sent even to help clean up and were just recruited and had to go clean up and how inadequately they were prepared for that just with face masks that were just cloth and not even really knowing what they were doing and the lack of care of the people. A number of people died from cancer afterward, right? Thyroid cancer was the biggest one, and especially among kids. So there was definitely increased rate in that. And right away, there were a number of deaths from people who were right there on the site. And then there are a lot of other health issues that you can't necessarily say this caused this, but a number of people who did go to help clean up, and that's a lot of the people I was talking to, had suffered different kinds of cancers and things. But you can't often directly correlated so hard. Thyroid cancer was the one that was really clear, yes, this was because of Chernobyl. What was the medical care like for them? Well, that was interesting. So officially in Ukraine, they had special cards so they could get free medical care. But when I was there in 2000, I remember, I think they had the cards, but they weren't receiving that extra care. Maybe 10% of it. It was some very small segment that were actually getting that. So they were supposed to get this extra special care and things, but it wasn't happening. So on paper, they were taken care of, but in reality, it wasn't happening. And in the medical situation, as I myself experienced (laughs) in hospitals there, was not up to the standards we have here. Just the equipment, they didn't have up-to-date equipment. I mean, there were well-trained doctors, but just the facilities and equipment were not up to what we would have had here at the time. When you heard news from overseas, was it pretty much unfiltered? 
That's a good question. I think so. I was working at an English language newspaper there, so we'd get wire services and we'd get things in. So I don't think by that point there was there was definitely oversight. Our um, our editor at the English language newspaper he was commonly held at the airport whenever he came and went by authorities for tax reasons or once they came to inspect us for electricity issues at our office. So there was definitely ways they kept an eye on us, but I don't think they were able to control what information we were getting. My phone at home was bugged, and I know they listened to my conversations when I talked to my mom and stuff, but they didn't stop connections or things. So I think we were able to get pretty much all the information we needed. And that was in the Ukraine. Yeah. yeah. And Riga was a little different. Yeah, Riga, I don't think, because um, we noticed the bugging was so bad on my phone in Ukraine, we could literally hear the person click on once the phone. Riga, I never heard that. And Riga, I didn't have, there wasn't as much, I don't remember the government coming into the newspaper office and, and doing things about tax or electricity, you know, kind of these reasons for oversight. It was Ukraine that really had a lot more of that. Well, having been to places that didn't change over that one decade, a city like Kiev, I would think, would have changed. Were there more signs of westernization in Kiev But at that point? Yeah, there were definitely, I think, in, in Riga, there was a McDonald's, and that was like where that was where everyone went. And that's when, when our water was shut off. McDonald's usually still had water. It was walking distance from our office. So McDonald's was, and you always knew there was um, tradition of you pay for toilets, uh, public toilets a lot of times. So McDonald's had the free toilets. So I do remember <laughs> McDonald's in, in Riga was a big deal. And there were McDonald's in Kiev. There was starting to get, I remember the U.S. Embassy, I could get a Diet Coke. You couldn't get that on the streets um, at that point. But you were starting to see more U.S.-type things, more westernization. Besides McDonald's, I don't think there was a KFC or any of those yet, but that you were starting to, I think McDonald's is the first one. Then you know uh, the rest follows. What was mentioned casually partway through the book, uh, most of the people you dealt with were either Americans or foreigners who were had some money but were kind of struggling to get along. And then you met a lot of people in Latvia and later Ukraine who were poor. But there's a reference toward the end of the book about you know how the oligarchs lived. What was that like? Were there like certain restaurants that suddenly looked like you know, the Four Seasons or something like that? There's a lot more of that now. But you would just see people dressed. You could tell by the way they were dressed, their attitudes, the the women. They were usually men and then the women who were with them. And it just looked like mafia type. I don't know how else to say it, but they were definitely had plenty of money, had dressed in the f fancy kind of expensive designer clothes, cars, really nice cars. There were certain, I think, restaurants or places where there would be, I didn't know any of them personally, so I didn't, but on the outskirts, you could see there was money and there was wealth and there were people who were profiting. I mean, you'd hear about them, but I, I never saw, I don't think I came across many up close much, just on the street, you would kind of see, right. and there got to be in Kiev, when I was there, some fancier restaurants, some fancier places. Were the expensive ones cheap in our terms? 
you know. I would imagine they would have been because my apartment was a nice apartment. Um, not super, super nice, but it was nice. And it was, and this was, of course, what, more than 15 years ago now. But it was, I think, $300 a month. And that was a nice not super nice. So super nice. You could probably get a super nice apartment for $600 a month, you know. So I would imagine it would have been cheaper than what we were here. So you went to Chernobyl and you were obviously a little nervous because you didn't know what the Geiger counter would be clicking. What did it look like? Did it just look a little bit wild? I know there's a city there that was abandoned. Yeah. So there were two. There was Pripet and there's Chernobyl. And it's a ghost town. It's really eerie. You've got, you go in the streets, you know, you can't even find the street signs anymore because they've either fallen off or covered by trees. Um, houses, you'll have trees growing right in front of the front door so you can't even get in. You've got vines coming in and out of windows. The roads themselves, no one's maintained them or anything. And there are no cars on the road. There are no street lights. There's nothing. And there was no, no service no shops, nothing. So very quiet. And then you go, and I was doing a story the first time I went on older people who had moved back in. So you'd be going down, and there's nothing, and all of a sudden you'd notice some laundry hanging out to dry, and it was just eerie. And you'd go, and, and I went in the house. My guide at the time, he used to live in Chernobyl, so we went in his old house, and the calendar still, April 1986, literally just right there on the wall. And then Everything's still there, but from 1986. So his sister was a teenager, and she had posters of the heartthrobs at the time, Russian heartthrobs at the time, 1986. So you've got the hair, you've got these different styles, and here you are uh, more than 15 years later, and you've got those on the wall. And then everything still there because mostly, well, everything of value is gone. It's been stolen, but most people, they were supposed to be coming back, so they didn't take a lot of stuff. And so it's just left as it was, except then you've got all the metals been stripped because it's been scavenged and resold. So it's, it's a strange mixture, but then you'll have family pictures there. Anatoly, my guide, he was picking one up and it was of his parents and they'd passed and he wanted to take it. And he said, I don't have this picture. And I was like, well, why don't you? And he said, but the dust, um, he was worried contamination from the dust. So he didn't take it. So even though some of their stuff is still there, people often don't take it because it's contaminated. So then the, the, an entire wardrobe of clothing that hadn't been stolen, let's say, would still be there and you can't really take it. And even the thieves probably shouldn't take it. Exactly. Yeah, I worry about, you know, all the metal that was taken and probably ended up in Kiev and other places. Anything that was of value, but clothes, things like that, yeah, was left and, and it, it should probably stay there. I interviewed uh, Martin Cruz Smith, who'd written a novel that takes place a few years later in Chernobyl. He said he went there and there were a lot more feral animals and the plants are very big and it's really eerie. It's not quite like a wilderness. Is that what you found? Yeah. And the people I talked to, I remember they would talk about pigs, wild pigs. And because a lot of the ones who move back and they're doing this illegally, they're not supposed to live there. And there were only a couple hundred of them or something. They would grow their own vegetables and things because they can't, there are no shops. And they would talk about wild pigs that kind of were scary and coming close. And then they also talked about well, another problem was fires, actually. There'd been a fire on their house, but there's no fire department because there's no, no one's supposed to be living there. So they had to try and put it out themselves, but there's no water service either. So it's just a disaster. All these things you don't think about, but when you're living in a place that's abandoned, 
you can't cope with these things. But I did. I didn't see any wild animals myself, but I had heard stories about them. Another trip later, we went to just outside the exclusion zone, and there was this huge, huge cat. And of course, everyone was joking about how the cat was. And the photographers were getting a kick out of taking pictures of this. I think it was just a really fat cat, but <laughs> of course, you get all these things. And then they started doing some experiments with cows to see about milk contamination and stuff. So they were doing some scientific inquiries when I was there on some of that. The country that isn't. Okay, so you were in the Ukraine and you were going to go to Moldova. And on the way, what happened? The Soviet Union did these interesting things. They move people who are from a region out and move in, Russians and do all this. But Transnistria was a part, a sliver between Ukraine and Moldova. Well, it's officially part of Moldova. This is the rumor that a lot of Russian military weapons were left behind. No one's really been able to find those weapons. And so what happened, though, basically it declared itself its own country, Transnistria, had its own president, has its own money, which I will tell you, if you try and exchange that money once you get out of the country, everyone's just going to laugh at you. But in the country, if you don't have the Transnistria money, you can't buy anything in tiny, tiny area. And so I decided, well, I want to go to a country that exists to no one except themselves, and Russia acknowledges them. And, of course, being there, also a lot of room for corruption and lots of news stories and things, so I wanted to go there. And so it was really complicated, though, because the first time we took a bus and the first time we stopped at a border, I didn't know if it was Moldovan authorities or Transnistria authorities who aren't official authorities, and so who, what to do. And they give you, once you get to Transnistria, you have to, like, check in with the the police, and then you have to make sure you check out and things. But then when you get to Moldova, you think you've already checked in because you're already officially in Moldova because Transnistria is part of Moldova, but yet it doesn't consider itself. It's very complicated when you get to the logistics. <laughs> so I kept getting pulled on and off this bus, and I wasn't sure which authorities I was working with and if they were actually real authorities or not. <laughs> What's the situation now? You know, that's a good question. I know my the guy um, who was president when I was there is no longer president. I think it's still a breakaway republic, and I think it's it's one of those that never got resolved. He had he had his own book. He gave me his book about his country and him, and it was it was like the biggest ego, just the strangest thing. When it, when I had an interview with him, it was on their national TV, and I'm sure that was part of his celebrity thing. Oh, the American journalist came here to visit me and things. Yeah, a national thing, which isn't a national. It was funny, though. We were on the buses there, and Sveta, the translator from Ukraine who I worked with, was like, oh, they're heated. I remember when things were heated. And there's still the hammer and sickle still there, so it was still very Soviet style. And she was reminiscing a lot of bad memories, but heated buses. She was just thankful that there were heated buses again, because at least some things worked under Soviet times, whereas they didn't anymore in Ukraine in a lot of ways. So I always found that funny. But we had someone following us the whole time, pretty obviously. Oh, there he is. Should we go ask him for directions? Because we're lost. <laughs> <laughs> Got you single. When you got to Moldova, that was to the real Moldova. Was that sort of like the Ukraine or was it more like Latvia? Totally different from both. And I was only in Moldova day, but I had a really bad experience. So that money I had. Was they stolen, were, right? Yeah. And I was stuck because I, I couldn't exchange my Transnistria money because no one besides from Transnistria acknowledges their money. So I only had $100 U.S. money, which was a lot of money for me back then. And I was trying to exchange it and I got 
tricked into and it got stolen. And so then we had no money and we were kind of hungry and in trouble. But I found it was more almost more like Romania. It was it's just a different part of Europe. It didn't feel Latvia definitely feels more Scandinavian in some ways and um, Ukraine much more Russian Eastern European and uh, Moldova felt closer to I hadn't seen Romania at the time but I've been since and it felt closer to that kind of culture in that place. It was difficult for me coming there from Moldova because of course I mean from Transnistria because the Moldovan authorities didn't really want to acknowledge Transnistria or talk about it to journalists so it was more it was a less welcoming visit whereas Transnistria was really happy to have a foreign journalist writing about them so except when you asked them about where all the weapons were then they said <laughs> <laughs> so so the this trip you know in Moldova you came from Ukraine and Transnistria you came from Moldova or Ukraine because it was its own country only it wasn't its own country uh, it, it's almost like a, a weird ealing comedy or something. It is. It kind of reminds me of some of the great Russian writers when they talk about like dead souls or things like that. These things that in that area of the world, and I think the humor, you get out of the absurdity of these situations. And I think that that was humorous and absurd. And you saw that before Soviet times, you saw it under Soviet times, and now you still see it today. From Chernobyl with love, focuses on winter, which is really cold. There's a little bit about summer. I guess nothing was air conditioned. No. I think the winter thing surprised me because I just, growing up in California, I wasn't prepared. I was so excited the first snow in Latvia, but it came before Halloween. And I didn't realize it stayed until well into, I think, May or June. There was a, it's a very long period of time, especially Latvia. And when they say snow stays, it doesn't mean it melts and then it comes back a couple of days later. It means, no, you don't see that ground <laughs> for all that time. And then the darkness to Latvia being very close to Scandinavia, it would get dark in winter, gosh, I think like 2 o'clock or so. I mean, you had so little light during the day. So I think for me... That was a big shock. And it affects everything when you have that much darkness and that much cold. It affects what you do, how how you do things. And then, of course, also the heat. When we didn't always have heat, they turn the heat on just at a certain date, not based on when it gets cold. The heat might not come on for two weeks after the first snow comes and you're sitting, you leave a colleague of mine left a glass of water out overnight to see in his on his kitchen sink to see if it would freeze, and it did. <laughs> I, I just remember from those two weeks in Moscow that Christmas that it was so cold outside that we were on buses and you couldn't see out the windows and you didn't want to touch the windows because they were so cold. Yeah, and that's where I learned in Moscow. This sounds very California and stupid, but I have a habit of putting my pen in my mouth when I'm trying to do different <laughs> things. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> stuck to the tongue, and, and it, even though just for a second there, and, and I remember being so cold once I dropped something on the ground. I think it was my phone. It's <laughs> like I'm not taking my gloves off to pick it up. I'm just too cold. Eventually, I did, but yeah. But people there, of course, live there. They're used to it. They get used to it. Yeah. Although you know, there's a reason to drink and keep warm. I mean, that I I'm not a drinker, but there were times when it was like you just need a shot of something just to warm you up. That brings up another thing, uh, Katya Sengel. It brings up the fact that 
a lot of people spend a lot of time, or at least those years, spent a lot of time in both Ukraine and Latvia drunk. Yes. The, the biggest lessons for me was when it was a breakfast and we got to breakfast and there were shot classes on the table for cognac at breakfast. Or when you'd run into people on the street in the morning and they were clearly already drunk and it wasn't even 8 a.m. And yeah, you get that sometimes here, but usually it's after a certain celebration or something like that. But that could just be the normal. And so there was a alcoholism was a huge problem in drinking and people. And it was such a part of any interview you went to. Everyone's very hospitable, but they always give you shot glass and toast. And it's hard because you're considered rude if you don't. So I developed tricks because there's no way. One, I wasn't a drinker. Two, even if I was, you can't just like. But it was a solution for everything. I remember my kickboxing uh, teacher, I told him I had pancreatitis, which is a disease that is actually made worse by alcohol. And he kept insisting, no, no, you just need vodka. Vodka is going to cure it. And after the Chernobyl explosion, a lot of people ended up getting drunk because vodka is a cure-all for radiation. So, I mean, it's just this idea, vodka cures everything. Uh, Again, from those two weeks so many years ago, I remember the only things that people drank were champagne and vodka. And that was it. That was all that was available in Moscow at the time. Yeah. I, when I was there, not much had changed because champagne usually right around New Year's and that time. Other than that, pretty much vodka, cognac sometimes, but, but vodka was more normal. When you went shopping and bought food, what were the prices like? Do I don't remember? think they were that bad. You didn't have massive grocery stores like here. So usually like the way home from work, I would buy fresh bread. Under the metro station, there would be people have little dolls set up there. And a lot of times it was babushkas, the older women just selling vegetables. So you'd get carrots or whatever. And so those were particularly cheap because it was kind of you negotiate a price and they're coming in from the countryside and they, they sell them pretty cheap. Things that were expensive were, I remember I tried to get peanut butter and at one point, finally peanut butter came in, but it had been imported from Germany or something. So it was, of course, super expensive. But the local things like the vegetables that had been grown there, the bread, the milk, it wasn't too bad. And you interviewed coal miners and went into a coal mine. And these people suffered as the people in Appalachia suffered. Yes. That reminds me of the funny stories. After Ukraine, I I went to um, Kentucky to interview for a job in eastern Kentucky, miners. And I made the comparison. I said, while interviewing, oh, yeah, I think your country's a lot like Ukraine wasn't a good thing to say on the job <laughs> interview, but it, I, it is a very valid comparison. So very impoverished region, unless you're some of those people in the corrupt area getting money out of the energy sector. But the regular people, miners were not paid. There was no money to pay them. So they were barter. The barter system was what they were paid in. So one month they might get slippers. The problem is every miner in town gets slippers. So then they're worthless because you can't exchange them for anything because everyone has slippers. So they'd go to the train station and try and sell exchange or sell slippers to people coming through, but didn't always work. So one mine operator I met was raising bunnies. So at least he could pay his miners with bunnies so they'd have something to eat. So they're doing this because there is no other work there. A big problem at the time was people would be selling metal. So they'd take the manhole covers, they'd take any metal anywhere on the streets and sell it. Uh, And it was actually pretty dangerous. You had to be really careful walking because there are no manhole covers anymore. There are none of those things. And one woman told me, she said, 
We're lucky if our daughters become prostitutes and our sons thieves because there was just nothing for them. Then you go down in the mines. So not only are you not really getting paid unless you're getting slippers or bunnies, you go down there and it's incredibly dangerous. So the mines, they don't have enough money for, as it was pointed out to me while I was down in a mine, for the things that are actually holding up the mines. So it's like... Great. So that means this could fall on us at any time. And not long afterwards, the mine I had been down, that happened and a number of people died. So, yeah, it was uh, similar to what you see in Appalachia where people risk their lives. I think, at least in Kentucky when I was there, there was a little more reason to risk your life because the jobs were relatively well paid. Of course, also you're risking your health and everything else. But these were not well paid. And But it, it's all there was. There was nothing there. When you were working on the book, were you basically doing it by looking at your old clippings? Is that kind of how you did it? <laughs> I did, actually. So I would look, and it's great because I also kept a diary. It was sporadic. I didn't always keep it, but it was great because I'd look, and I'd see a story, and then it would bring back the memories, and I'd be like, oh, yeah, so I almost didn't have to have a diary because the dates are right there and there's there. And most of my life at the time was around my work. So I'd remember, oh, that's when I went there to do that story. Oh, and that's when we went to the hotel that had no hot water or no, and we had to sleep with our boots on and our hats on because it was so cold. So, yeah, they were a great help. <laughs> and then you got sick. Yes. And pancreatitis. Yeah, which was interesting because I was, what, mid-20s, mm, slim, non-drinker. And usually pancreatitis is older, overweight, alcoholic men is the usual one. And so no one could figure out what happened. Um, and to this day, they still don't really know what happened. Could it have been Chernobyl? And I, I, I kind of joke about those things. I don't, I don't think so. I think that that would probably be a stretch. The best hypothesis they have is that that's a really heavy diet in Ukraine, a lot of fat. And I just wasn't used to that much fat, having grown up in California on more like fruits and vegetables and things, and that I couldn't digest it. But it was scary because pancreatitis is a pretty serious disease. And when you get <laughs> illness, when I had it, you're not allowed to eat for like a week or so. And so you lose weight really fast if you can't eat. And um you don't want to spend a week in a Ukrainian hospital back in the early part of this century. <laughs> well, I know it sounds terrible, and it was terrible. But before that, you broke your leg, and that story is even worse because it just sounds like you went into Dante's hell. <laughs> that was the funniest because I remember I'd broken a bone on my foot, and I went in, and first of all, I couldn't walk on it, but they don't have any wheelchair to get you around to get go to the x-ray or any of those things. And the x-ray machine was so ancient looking, and they don't ask you if you're pregnant or give you the little protector to protect from the x-ray rays, so who knows what all I got then. But then the doctor decides it's broken, and then they decide they need to cast it. So they send me to this other room where there's two old women, and there's a guy on the table and they're pulling and prodding him and he's screaming <laughs> and they can't fully do it. So they asked my boyfriend, who is not any medical professional at all, to help them. And they're doing this. And I'm quite scared by this. But then they put me up there and decide to give me a cast. And it's um, basically like how you do paper mache. You know, you wet it and you put it on and things. And I can't walk because I've got a cast on. And I can't put my pants back over because it doesn't fit over. And they just let, let us go. And I'm like, okay, so 
can we get some crutches or something? No. So my boyfriend had to carry me down. And then I got home and it's winter and it's freezing cold because the cast hasn't dried. So then I'm afraid I'm going to get pneumonia and we couldn't figure out how to dry it. So we're getting a hair dryer, trying to dry it, then putting it by the heater. And then I think the big thing was I kept asking for crutches and everyone kept saying, why? They just expected me to just stay inside until I got better, which was going to be weeks. And I didn't understand. I'm like, well, I can still think. I can still do stuff. And you you had a job. Exactly, yeah. And so and, and back then you couldn't work as remotely because I didn't have internet at home and I couldn't do things. I couldn't communicate as well. Um, the phone system wasn't that great. Even I had a cell phone. It took forever to get crutches. They didn't have them at the doctor's offices. They didn't have them in shops. They didn't. So I got these hand-me-down crutches from boyfriend's great aunt or something somehow got these which were way too short because she was really petite and I'm tall and then I remember the first time I tried to go to work I was having trouble getting up on the bus with crutches and people were not patient with me they just looked at me and said why are you going to work the idea that that you would want to work one and that someone who was disabled would go out even temporarily and public it just wasn't thought of. You just are supposed to kind of hide away and disappear. Did you have a uh, laptop or was this I did. And I do remember at some point I did get some internet, but it was dial-up. Do do you remember? Sure. Sure. (laughs) But you had, I mean, you were able to write at home on your computer. Yeah, And you had, I guess, floppies. Yeah, I think it was floppy disks back then. Yeah. Yeah. But I I think probably the main thing was internet so slow I remember I used to draft emails at home and send them from work. So I think it was probably more the internet than I could write if I had all my notes and stuff, but I couldn't email the editor or anything from home. And that, of course, now has completely changed. When you were in Louisville afterward, did you keep having weird flashbacks and going, my God, it's so different here? I had trouble when I first came back, too. I had trouble. It still gets me when I go overseas and come back. It's like especially big mass shops, you go into Costco or something, I still find it scary. But just, um, and, and it was funny, my mom, in kind of trusting institutions, again, I'd gotten used to, you don't put money in banks, you don't ask the authorities for questions, you ask regular people. And so I think I still had some of those tendencies a little, and I did have a little trouble adjusting. And then, and then of course, I went to Kentucky, which was very different from California, so it was another change. But I kept saying people were always like, oh, you're going so far from home. And I was like, not really. They speak English there. (laughs) This is kind of weird because I was thinking reading the book that, you know, if Donald Trump had his way, we would turn into the Ukraine. Does that make sense? You mean kind of with the corruption levels? Corruption level and the difference between those people and those cars driving off to their dachas. You know, the sad thing is that ever since I've returned, even I think it's slowly become uh, for years, even before Trump, I feel like our country is becoming more. We're losing the middle class. The pay of CEOs is so it should be more than a regular worker, but it's so extreme to what regular people get that I think. In some ways, you could go to cities in the U.S. where it's pretty close to that. I think you aren't far from the mark, but I think it even happened before Trump. I think our our society has kind of been going that way. Obviously, the corruption we're seeing now. I mean, there's a line you talk about, the egomaniac. 
and I kept thinking, you know, we're seeing these egomaniac leaders, Erdogan, Trump, it's kind of a stupid version, Putin. What seems to be happening is that the worst elements of overseas have come into this country. And maybe they were always here, but they were under the surface. Yeah. I think the worst part of Soviet was they care more for their reputation than for their people. I don't know if we're quite there yet here. I think hopefully our leadership still at some level cares for the people. But I think that's when it gets really dangerous, when you care more for the country's reputation than for the actual people living within it. That's definitely still the case with Russia and Putin, for sure. I mean, uh, that was the case with Chernobyl. That's why they didn't ask for help. It was the case with the Kursk um, submarine tragedy and so many other things. I haven't seen exactly that here, and I hope I hope we don't because that is incredibly scary. Well, now you've been back for 15, 18 years, and you think back, what lessons, Katya Sengel, have you learned yourself that you can apply in some way, having gone through that experience as a young reporter in these countries? I think the... The trust of regular people, it was interesting because the people I would interact with much, mostly were just regular people. And, and how similar, despite cultures or different things, regular people are. You know, leadership changes in different countries and things, and but the basic needs of regular people and how you can relate to them. I think also for that region of the country, I love there's this humor, survivor humor that I love, that I think taught me a lot. And also you just keep going. You suffer, you get up the next day and you do what you're going to do. And so the stoicism, but this way of actually having humor with it, I really appreciate. And I still have uh, some of my closest, close friends here, a friend who um, was raised in the Czech Republic. And I can't explain, especially the women, they have this great humor, fatalistic a little. The humor makes it bearable. And it's realistic. I think also the realistic of it, trusting people and not necessarily trusting government or institutions to take care of you, but just trusting other people. And I think that stayed with me as a lesson that I definitely trust those relationships and value those. Also, things can fall apart. I know that's the title of a great book, that you have to protect yourself because who knows what's going to happen. Katja Sengel, this book is out and you've been working on it for a long time. Uh, have you started working on another one? I have. I'm actually working on juvenile mental health and institutionalization. And I'm not sure where I'm going with that yet, but that's the one I started working on. You've been listening to an interview with Katja Sengel, whose book is titled From Chernobyl with Love, Reporting from the Ruins of the Soviet Union. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>